Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. The world today is driven by innovation, possibly more than at any other time in history. Everything is a science this, a technology that. STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math, is being pushed for every child to get into, and discoveries and knowledge are increasing at an amazing rate. But motion for the sake of motion isn't always the best thing. Are we innovating the correct things, drawing the correct conclusions, doing the most good we can? Are we bringing glory to our Creator through our innovation? Eh. On today's episode, first we're going to suffocate, and then we'll find out what's really important. So stock up on oxygen tanks, and then sit back and relax, and just get ready to listen for a year. Because mathematically, here we go. Okay, take a deep breath. Deeper. Deeper. Now hold it. Hold it. You'll want to hang on to that breath for a while. Why? Well, because found on sciencealert.com headline, Enjoy it while you can. Dropping oxygen will one day suffocate most life on Earth. (laughs) Hey, Merry Christmas. So I'll admit, These are one of my favorite types of articles, although admittedly these are frustrating because these alleged professionals are literally getting paid to develop these theories, whereas I have to do actual useful work using my brain to analyze real data to come up with real conclusions and develop real action plans. It would be much, much easier if I could just say, uh, Uh, There may be a day in the next hundred years where that machine won't work the way it does today and there's nothing we can do about it. Can I have money now? So as we know, as I've covered many times in the past, we're doomed, both in the short term and the long term, and y'all need to be really scared, and even though we're doomed and can't do anything about it, neither short term nor long term, we should spend a lot of money to play stupid games so we can win stupid prizes, because why not, right? But what is the latest culprit? of our doom, and when is this one going to happen? Well, as of right now, we have oxygen on, or or in, or surrounding our planet, whatever it is. You may be familiar with oxygen. If you're still holding your breath, the reason you see that blackness closing in on you is because you desperately need oxygen right now. So stop holding that breath. Go ahead, breathe normally. Better. The problem is that although we have literally all the oxygen we need Right now, there will absolutely be a point in the future where the Earth will, quote, revert back to one that's rich in methane and low in oxygen. So that's going to cause us some problems, you know, with with living. But before you sell all your stuff and go on that final global tour before our untimely demise, the prediction is that this, quote, probably won't happen for another billion years or so. But when the change comes, it's going to happen fairly rapidly, according to research published in 2021. Hold up! 2021? It's nearly 2023 right now, and we're hearing about this 
now? We've already lost so much time. This is journalistic negligence, if you ask me. If my grandchildren to the 50 millionth power die because of no oxygen, and it's because this research wasn't reported on until nearly two years after it was done, oh, I'm suing. That's not a promise, my friends. That is a threat. Now, it's not a huge deal in the grand scheme of things. It's it's really just a cycle, as this was how the planet was approximately 2.4 billion years ago before the GOE, or Great Oxidation Event. So how was this impending doom discovered? Why, <laughs> with your favorite tool and mine, the model. As the researchers whatever that term means in this case, Kazumi Ozaki and Christopher Reinhardt said in their paper, quote, the model projects that a deoxygenation of the atmosphere with atmospheric O2 dropping sharply to levels reminiscent of the Archaean Earth will most probably be triggered before the inception of moist greenhouse conditions in Earth's climate system and before the extensive loss of surface water from the atmosphere. Oh, well, so all of those... All of those words, they seem to be bad words. In fact, the conclusion is that, uh, well, you and I will die at that point. Now, on the bright side of their ironclad conclusions, based on a model, the researchers said that having oxygen in the atmosphere of a planet, any planet, is, quote, unlikely to be a permanent feature of habitable worlds in general, which has implications for our efforts to detect signs of life further out in the universe. <laughs> oh, well, well, we'll come back to this one. Now, previously, scientists, and I use that term very loosely and somewhat comedically, have said that due to the sun's normal process of being a dying star and the increased radiation that will result from that, that in only two billion years the oceans would dry. Now, a not oft-discussed ramification of the oceans drying up is that at that point, We'll be able to see just how many bodies are down there, which that's gross. But per this latest article, bumping our demise up a billion years, we'll have been dead for about one billion years at that point. So, you know, probably not a big deal. But Dan, you say, and then I would say, don't call me but Dan. And then you'd look at me with annoyance and continue. How sure are these researchers? For as we know, scientists today don't really test or analyze anything prior to publishing unfounded conclusions and laying out action plans that are forced upon us that are, in fact, worse than what they're trying to fix. And I'd respond that I understand your skepticism. But this isn't some new chemical that the governments of the world want to inject into our bodies. This is important stuff. And because of this importance, these researchers have run their modeled simulation just under 400,000 times. I guess my first question, rooted in my OCD, is uh, if you ran it just under 400,000 times, why not run it right at 400,000 times? I mean, did your computer run out of ones and zeros? <sighs> per the average finding of these simulations, quote, the drop in oxygen is very, very extreme. We're talking around a million times less oxygen than there is today. Okay, now why do we care? Well, because we need to be on the hunt and probably step up our urgency for other planets out there that we could possibly inhabit.
Of course, we've been searching for other inhabitable planets for some time now because we're literally just destroying our planet. But first, we thought we had a couple billion years, not just a single billion years. And second, we've been looking for a planet with the correct atmospheric gas concentration right now. But now we know for sure that that might be a huge mistake. See, according to Reinhard and Ozaki, this sweet spot with regard to oxygen on our planet may only be the case for 20 to 30% of our planet's total life. After we go through our great deoxygenation, we'll have high methane levels and low CO2 levels and no ozone layer, so the only living thing on the planet after that would be anaerobic life forms. And the last thing we need is a planet full of Richard Simmonses. Think about it. You'll get there. So the implication for our scientists that are getting paid to look for other planets we could run to, getting paid well through grants and tax dollars to look for inhabitable planets, is that they'll need to now broaden their scope of investigation to planets that right now do not appear to be habitable based on the atmosphere, and they'll need to create models and simulations probably right up to retirement age for these scientists. Now, there are those that would dare to charge me with being cynical. I may be bitter, resentful, sour, distorted, disenchanted, disillusioned, disappointed, pessimistic, or skeptical, which were the top synonyms that Microsoft Word gave me for cynical, but I'm not (laughs) absent-minded. Anyway, where was I? Oh, yes, this almost seems like these scientists have figured out a way to, I don't know, create a job for themselves. Now, all those planets they dismissed before this new finding, now they all need to have data gathered and analyzed and then be reported on just in case we can run to that planet in, say, eh, three quarters of a billion years, as that one is coming into the great oxygenation period or, or something. I don't know. Seems a little scammy to me. How about you? Now, did you catch a few other unusual things in this article? Let's see if you heard what I did. They said that the sun, as it goes through what we assume is the normal life cycle of a star, truth be told, a lot of that is based on assumption, the sun will grow and get brighter and result more heat given off, causing our planet to warm, which will destroy atmospheric levels of CO2, which is what plants breathe, so less plants because the planet can't support as many, which lowers the oxygen level on the planet since that's what plants exhale, which leads to our problem, at least in part. But aren't we being told that the sun isn't the cause of global warming, that man is? And why? Well, because we're using fossil fuels that, when burned, give off CO2, and CO2 causes warming and is killing the planet. Except they're saying CO2 is actually a good thing because it allows more plants to grow, which enriches the atmosphere with more oxygen, which as humans we're generally fond of. But as of right now, entire industries are being built to capture carbon from the atmosphere. Carbon capture being short, of course, for carbon dioxide capture. They want to scrub CO2 from our planet. But wouldn't that cause the same less plants, less oxygen problem? Or no, apparently not, because we're homo sapiens sapiens. You know, wise, wise man. Eh, We know what we're doing here. But in fact, the report came out in 2019 that the planet is actually greener today than it was 20 years ago, specifically attributable to China and India. And we know why. 
it's because they're planting trees and doing something, something agriculture, but it's not because they're refusing to curb their carbon dioxide creation. <laughs> it can't be that. Go back three more years to 2016, and a report from NASA said that the planet has been greening for the past 35 years prior to that report, quote, largely due to rising levels of atmospheric carbon dioxide. Huh, what you know about that? But of course, that's only a temporary good thing, and it'll all be bad. As we know, CO2 is bad. It's, it's so very bad. Except that according to this article, not CO2 is, is bad. It's, it's so very, very bad. So which, which one is it? It seems to me that we have a massive amount of plants and a massive amount of land that could have plants. And if we really did have a greenhouse effect due to CO2, we won't. But let's say we did. Wouldn't that just make us more tropical, causing, I don't know, deserts to sprout, creating more oxygen, etc., etc., life cycle? Seems to me that wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing. We're at a credible theory, which it's, it's just simply not. Now, next, did you notice how this drop in oxygen was predicted to, quote, happen fairly rapidly, according to their research? Why? Why is that important? Think about it. These are evolutionary scientists. The god of evolution is, everybody, time, right? Evolution is the culmination of minor changes over time. If oxygen levels slowly dipped over time, evolution says that man would evolve to be able to breathe less and less oxygen, eventually being able to subsist on breathing methane. So in order to continue the narrative that this is imperative we do something, which amounts to a lot of paid researchers doing paid research, they must have the deoxygenation happen rapidly. Too rapidly for evolution to keep up, as it turns out, and then man dies, unless we get off the planet, thus requiring the paid researchers to do the paid research. Now, if you look into the great oxygenation period, playing along that this was a real thing, you actually find that even this isn't looked on as a positive thing by all scientists. For instance, other names for this alleged event include the, quote, oxygen catastrophe, the, quote, oxygen crisis, or my favorite, the, quote, oxygen holocaust. But if this is where the planet oxygenated, why would they call it these things? Okay, well, we know for sure this happened from 2.4 to 2.0 billion years ago during the, say it with me, the Paleoproterozoic era. That's right. Very good. The scientists have inferred that this happened due to, say it with me here, cyanobacteria. Oh, very good. Producing a massive amount of oxygen for, for reasons, I guess, I... I don't know. My assumption, also inferring from what we know, is that the cyanobacteria and the anaerobic crime syndicate were likely in a turf war, and the cyanobacteria knew that if they just pushed harder and made more oxygen, it would kill off a massive amount of team anaerobic. Winner, winner, oxygen dinner. And lucky for us, as without that sweet, sweet O2, we wouldn't have evolved. Now, to sum up all of this, I'd say uh, poppycock which is an unfortunate expression of disbelief since poppycock is a delicious toffee popcorn treat. And yet I'll say it again, poppycock. 
Okay, look, we've covered this multiple times. This is a godless evolutionary worldview based on nothing but assumptions, logical fallacies, and fantasy. They created a model and ran the simulations, not quite 400,000 times in order to collect the data. But as I've said before, the model is only good as the modeler. A model is nothing but a high-tech digitized sack of assumptions, base predictions, hopes, dreams, an undigested bit of beef, a blot of mustard, a crumb of cheese, a fragment of an underdone potato. And that's about it. If bad data, bad assumptions, bad past scientific conclusions are fed into the model, what do you think you'll get out? Garbage in, garbage out, right? But why do I care? If they want to believe this, how does this affect me? Well, it doesn't. It doesn't affect me really at all. But it does use a lot of money, to some degree, my tax money, to pursue idiocy. Now, I'd rather pursue my own idiocy with my own money, but, but nope, I can't. I have to give it to the government. But on a larger scale, think of all the good that could be done with all the money being poured into grants, salaries, analyses, equipment, rocket launches, etc., all because we refuse to even consider the biblical account of creation and the biblical account of the end of the world. We're not going to deoxygenate. The seas aren't going to dry up. Man doesn't need a new planet. And the sun isn't going to supernova. Jesus is holding this planet and universe together and will continue to do so until the end, at which point the planet will burn up and then be remade. Now that concept, or theory, or as I'd call it, that fact, doesn't lend itself to a fancy doomsday model, it doesn't require simulations, it doesn't require rocket launches, satellites, and space telescopes, and it doesn't need an untold number of scientists around the globe getting paid to prognosticate all manner of fantastical prophecies. And then we come to the most important point. The number of people being led astray by these theories, maybe not by this specific one alone, but the culmination of all of these similar theories predicting doom, promoting evolution, calling it science when it's nothing of the sort, is uncountable. And it makes no difference that there are massive contradictions between theories, inside of theories, between actual data and theories, between reality and logic, and the so-called science of the day. As long as models and simulations are used, as long as the news reports on studies that are done by science guys, a massive number of people will just accept at face value that they must know what they're talking about, when they clearly don't. And sadly, the majority of Christians either aren't interested or aren't able to refute these fanciful claims, or maybe both. Rather, we just hand over our kids and hand over our legitimate science to the pagan, God-hating world, and just let them have it. Let them tell us where we came from, how we came about, and where we're going, and we'll just kind of tack on, hey, Jesus loves you, in the middle of it all, and then sit back down in our corner pew and just shut up for a while. Now, as I've stated multiple times recently, Christians are the legitimate owners of reason, logic, science, discernment, and many others. But we've sat by as the world has robbed us blind, and now we have to play catch-up. So, regardless of your age, your career, your perceived intelligence, it's time that all Christians get in the game. We don't have to be experts in everything, but we must be able to give an answer about the hope we have what we believe and why, to anyone that asks us. Now, in order to do that, we must be able to not only discuss the gospel and salvation, but also the foundation of our faith, found in the beginning chapters of Genesis, as well as eschatology, or the end times, at least to some degree, and how the biblical worldview not only refutes the humanist worldview, but presents a logical narrative that explains what we see around us. 
If we really claim to believe the Bible is God's word, if we truly believe God to be sovereignly in control of everything, we must be able to defend that belief to a world that's being indoctrinated with the nonsense stories and fairy tales such as the planet hurtling toward a complete loss of its oxygen in only a short one billion years. Well, as we edge closer to wrapping up another year, we must all be ready for the flurry of year-in-review articles and news stories and podcasts, etc. The year of our Lord, 2022, has been uh, interesting, to say the least. It used to be that we could get to the end of a difficult year and say, well, at least this year is over, with the implication being a fresh year will bring fresh hope. I think I speak for most humanoids when I say uh, I'm kind of terrified about what the next year will bring. But we'll let tomorrow worry about itself. For now, found on theatlantic.com headline, The 10 Most Promising Breakthrough Innovations of 2022. See, I don't want to review 2022. I want to review a review of 2022. So let's take a look at what the author, Derek Thompson, feels and The Atlantic published as the top 10 most promising breakthroughs. Now keep in mind, this is a top 10 list of essentially science and technology breakthroughs, so we need to draw our boundary of thought around that alone. Now per our author, he found that one of the main themes of the list he generated was the concept of, quote, twin ideas, or, quote, the tendency for major breakthroughs to have more than one author. And this is surprisingly true throughout history, in fact. Industrial and technological breakthroughs seem to be subject to the phenomenon of popping up in multiple locations, innovated by different people, all within a short time of each other. He cites the rise of AI generation apps and tools this year, and 2022 being the, quote, golden age of new vaccine technology. Many different companies are building off the success of the COVID shots to deliver new antiviral weaponry for humankind. Oh, oh, I'm so happy. Be still, my heart. Uh, Not as still as those that jabbed and boosted themselves to the moon, of course. These are examples, along with the rest of his list, as he calls this progress, right? So so let's see if he's right. Let's see if this is progress. Let's see if we can pick up any other themes or patterns in the most innovative breakthroughs in his list. Number one on his list is, quote, the generative AI eruption. Basically, he breaks this down into two categories, AI bots that create illustrations and AI bots that work in the realm of text. He mentions a few by name, illustrators like Stable Diffusion and Dolly 2, which take text that the user inputs, and they do their best to create an illustration of that thing, that text. Now, for the most part, we find these creations on Twitter, after someone plugs in keywords like uh, Cat Napoleon flies a kite, And then the AI bot grabs cat images and Napoleon images and kite flying images and merges the concepts together to give multiple horribly deformed images of what was asked for. These are amusing. That's about all. Now, I know that a few months ago, an AI-generated painting won first prize at a state fair in that specific category. But although at first glance it looks pretty nice... The more you look at it, in my non-professional artist opinion, it kind of looks like hot garbage. 
But then again, people get millions of dollars for doing things like painting a square canvas purple and naming it something like the Square Grapes of Wrath. So who am I to judge? Huh, it's not a bad idea. The creator of the Dolly 2 bot said that his goal was to teach these, quote, AI systems to see the world the way humans do. The author thinks it may be even more plausible that AI will teach us to see the world how it sees it. Mr. Thompson also writes about the verbal-based bots that can answer questions and form thoughts, etc., etc. He, as a writer, sees AI in the near future helping authors like him write his stories, helping him with transitions or when he's stuck on a thought. In fact, he had a bot write a sentence for him. After prompting the bot with a different, very specific sentence, and then he adapted that sentence and plopped it into the article. So, so see, saving time. Now, I've mentioned before that AI can never outthink a human. A computer can think faster and can make faster decisions, but they aren't capable of independent thought, and they definitely can't think outside the box, and I feel confident saying they never will. I know I may be in the minority here, but God created us with an amazing intellect, the ability to gain knowledge, the ability to gain experience, both of which a computer can do, but most importantly, the ability to gain wisdom and to make seemingly illogical choices based on morality and conscience. Those are things a computer, an AI bot, cannot and will never be able to do. No matter what we do, the computer will always be a computer. Now, maybe one day I'll be proven wrong on this, but uh, but no, no, I, no, I won't. Next on his list, number two, quote, the power to reverse death, kind of. So this has to do with an experimental chemical that was pumped into animals that had been dead for an hour and caused the heart to start pumping again, and some organs to start organing again, and some cells to revive and start healing themselves. The chemical they pumped in was a mixture of nutrients, nerve blockers, anti-inflammatory drugs, and, and other drugs mixed with animal blood. It was reintroduced back into the animal. Now, the animal did not come back to life. Let's be very clear here. Although some of these organs did reanimate. Now, the thought behind this is that we could store and maintain organs for transplant much longer than before, and that maybe maybe at some point down the road, we could bring the fallen soldier back to life or revive those that died from traumatic or natural causes. The author wonders, quote, could we stock hospitals and nursing homes with buckets of the stuff to resuscitate patients? Should every future American household keep some on hand in the event of a terrible accident? So could a chemical compound be created that would preserve organs longer or that could revive a clinically dead person, as in get the heart beating again? Uh, I mean, maybe. But let's be clear. The one that holds the keys to life and death isn't going to be tricked by a bucket of chemicals. When the last second of your life ticks away, per the foreordination of God, no goo bucket will help you. The reality is that although the short-term benefits for organ preservation may be beneficial, maybe what these researchers are doing has been going on for millennia. You know, the fountain of youth, the quest for immortality, the fear of death, the fear of what death may reveal. This is what's driving this research. Make no mistake about that. Man doesn't want to die. 
the general population is terrified of death, not just of the process of dying, that's understandable regardless of your beliefs, but of death itself and what lies beyond. And just like the theory of evolution, man feels that since we're just a bunch of chemicals and electrical impulses, why could we not just create and reanimate and sustain life forever? And speaking of creating life, number three, quote, the power to synthesize life. Kind of. Now, this is the story of the scientist that created living, developing mouse embryos with no sperm, no egg, and no womb. Now, I'm not going to dive into this one too deeply. I did a more extensive review on this alleged creation of life in episode 55, Delve Into Something New, in the segment Parts as Parts. Link is in the notes. The bottom line, they did in fact create mouse embryos without sperm, eggs, and a mouse womb. But they did it using their intelligence, using already created stem cells, using an artificial womb created to be as close as possible to a mouse womb, creating a number of embryos, most of which were not viable, some of which were severely deformed, but started to form a brain, a spinal column, and a beating heart, and then they died. The scientists created a monstrosity that tried to do what it was being chemically commanded to do, and it failed. Again, the immediate alleged use is to make lab-grown organs for people, but I think we know what the end goal really is here. To, to prove life doesn't have to be created, you know, the old-fashioned way. It's, it's just this simple. Now, with all of this talk of organs used to sustain life, potentially indefinitely, we'll definitely need number four. Quote, the vaccine cavalry is coming. Oh, oh, good. Oh, I think I speak for all of us when I say, please, Mr. Government Scientist, inject me with all the stuff. So the author starts his number four innovation with, quote, decades from now, historians may regard the 2020s as a golden age of vaccine breakthroughs. The mRNA vaccines that blunted the mortality of COVID were just the start. Oh, boy. Yes, the golden age where we can artificially synthesize a chemical that will potentially blunt the potential harm and then massively increase the potential for other causes of death and disability. And we can now do this for everything because we are the wise, wise man. He cites a new malaria vaccine developed by scientists from Oxford University that was extremely effective. So effective that in a trial of 450 children, only three doses and one booster gave them up to 80% effectiveness at preventing infection. Now, I'd ask, uh, at what long-term cost? Do we know? Without going too deeply, we now know, or some of us always knew this, but it's been admitted to now, that the COVID vaccines were not tested. It was a rush-through series of minor tests, a lot of computer simulations, and then stamp, approved. And the latest booster was never tested on a human. A few mice, and then based on what it was, boom, approved again. Now, all the way down to six months old. Oh, thank goodness. And the injuries and deaths attributed to the so-called vax pile up and up, and the number of died suddenly and sudden adult death syndrome, or SADS deaths, well, those keep increasing. Now look, I'm not against vaccines. I'm against using a novel, custom-tailored mRNA chemical 
with a delivery system that can pass through the womb, that can pass through the blood-brain barrier, that can pass through the mother's breast milk, that apparently does not leave your body, that modifies, not for the better, the immune system with no long-term testing, just computer-generated results from models and simulations based off of almost no data. I'm kind of against, you know, that. But not the author. Quote, In November, an experimental flu vaccine was found to induce a protective immune response against all known types of flu in animals. This breakthrough, which uses mRNA technology, wouldn't prevent all flu infections, but it would raise a patient's level of immune protection, blunting the harm from seasonal flus and assuaging scientists' fears that the next global pandemic could be an influenza strain with higher mortality than COVID. Oh, it makes me wonder what they're working on in the lab, does it you? Again, we come back to the fear of death, and we come back to science positive. They can simply manipulate the most complex building block systems of the body to just, you know, do their bidding, to keep us well and safe and healthy and alive with no thought given to the future of the individual or of the human population in general. And number five now, that sends us back in time. No, not in a DeLorean or a phone booth or a TARDIS, but through the lens of the James Webb Telescope. Number five innovation, quote, a snapshot of the beginning of time. Ooh, <laughs> I'll take an 8x10 glossy signed by the universe, if possible, please. As the James Webb peers into space, it's looked past a number of very interesting blobs of nebulae to uh, what gave the appearance of a, quote, a blurry, destemmed cherry, a reddish blob of light more than 13 billion years old. Now, this is the farthest we've peered back in time, so they say. The excitement, of course, is, quote, the exquisite photos could lead us to new discoveries in cosmology. Flipping through snapshots of the baby cosmos, scientists might be able to piece together the story of the universe's beginning. Behind those lush and dreamy images might lie evidence of what actually happened during or just after the Big Bang. And as they fine-tune and turn up the power more and more on the James Webb, they'll peer deeper and deeper into space, and thus deeper and deeper back in time, and eventually, possibly to the Big Bang itself. So the concept of looking back in time is that light travels at the speed of light. And so if you look at the sun, which is eight light minutes away from Earth, we're seeing the sun as it was eight minutes ago. Don't, don't stare. So the farther we look the older the light that we're seeing. If we look 100 million light years away, we're looking at what was 100 million years ago. Or that's the theory. Now, I'll be honest. This theory has never made sense to me. And maybe it's just that I'm not an astrophysicist or a cosmologist or a cosmetologist or whatever, but, but although the optics of a telescope can look farther in distance... Why does that equal farther back in time? I mean, the light still needs to travel to the optics of the telescope. Wouldn't you need to go farther out in space in order to see farther back in time, in, in theory? I don't know. I've just never been able to make this theory that we're looking back in time make sense to me. Maybe it's just me. Regardless, 
This is simply the evolutionary theory of uniformitarianism. If something is 8 light minutes away, it must take 8 minutes for light to get here. If something is 100 million light years away, it must have taken 100 million years to get here. But the reality is, we don't know how light works in space. We don't know if light travels faster or slower, or the same, in the coldest reaches of the universe. And the assumption of a Big Bang, which is being maligned by a growing number of cosmic evolutionists, is an unprovable theory based on the appearance that everything in the universe is moving away from everything else. So, at some point, it must have been closer, right? Well, a question that's asked of the young Earth creationist is, how did light get here then? Well, I mean, if Adam was created mature, and animals were created mature, and plants and trees were created mature... Why would light not be created mature? Is there some theological law that says God can create everything mature, but not light? Light must start at the origin of the light and only travel at the accepted speed of light. See, I think there was a Big Bang. I really do. I personally think there was a Big Bang. But I think it was when God created the stars also. I think there was a massive explosion of light and matter that stretched across the universe instantly. Now, I can't prove that, obviously, but it sure makes more sense than the Big Bang Theory. There's no question about that. Anyway, moving on, we're on the backside of this mountain now with number six. Quote, unheard of advances in fighting cancer. This one is the first one that I'd say shows actually great promise, one that I would put in the list of great innovations. I remember hearing about this, a study that erased cancer from 18 patients that had rectal cancer, and then a few months later, the same level of success in a trial of metastatic breast cancer. Now, I don't know the exact mechanism, but this is being done through the use of monoclonal antibodies synthesized to specifically target certain proteins. The hope is that in time, treatments like this could fight off cancer without having to use the current slate of treatments that practically bring you to the edge of death to try to save you. Additionally, new blood tests are being developed that are showing promising results in detecting 50 types of cancer very, very early. In the case of cancer, oftentimes a death sentence, definitely a death sentence if you do nothing about it, this is where novel experimental types of treatments should take place for those that are willing to take that chance. Now, is this, if it's true, is this a miraculous thing? Is this a miracle? No. Although we'd like to claim miracles for amazing things, this is science. This is real medical science with enlightenment granted to us by God to use the immunities and systems that he created in some people to facilitate the immunity and reparation ability in someone else. Not a true miracle, rather potentially a wonderful blessing granted by God. This, this is exciting. This is a good one. And then we get to number seven, possibly my personal favorite for very personal reasons that I'm sorry, I'm just not willing to divulge at this point. Quote, the obesity therapy surge. Apparently four in 10 Americans are obese. I think I account for at least three of my group of 10, but that's neither here nor there. I love how the author dives into the idea of drugs for weight loss, which has always been gimmicky at best. Quote, the term weight loss pill was rightly a pejorative and patients were stuck with diet and exercise or bariatric surgery. <laughs> I mean, we were, we were stuck with doing the right thing and enacting self-control and self-discipline. Or not doing the right thing and just having Dr. Now work his magic, making our stomach look like a banana. But now, you can forget the diet and the exercise thing and 
doctor now can move himself on into retirement because now we have jabs, 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 jabs. And as we know, drugs fix everything, right? Apparently in the 2010s, it was found that patients that were prescribed the diabetes medicine semaglutide, 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 were losing a lot of weight. We'll fast forward a bit, and in 2021, the FDA approved an injectable semaglutide, but realized that that name was silly and hard to say, so it was approved under a much better, much newer, nice name, WeGovy. Yeah, WeGovy. Additionally, there are some other drugs that are being trialed that are showing the same promise. These drugs mimic hormones that regulate insulin and slows down how fast the stomach empties. As of right now, they're seeing people lose 15 to 20% of their body weight in a matter of a few months, depending on the drug being used, of course. I mean, 20%. Now, I'm not a maths guy, but I think that would be something like 200 pounds for me. Oh, something like that. I like it. (laughs) Seriously, though, this is a promising concept with my concern being the average smuck like me that doesn't especially enjoy exercise but does especially enjoy food, would just use this rather than actually try. See, I could see this type of drug having very, very limited positive uses, but even Dr. Now knows if the patient doesn't show any initiative on their own, it doesn't matter how many long skinny toops he makes stomachs into, the patient will revert back to his old ways. I'm not overly convinced this type of drug will be a good thing in the long run. But how about number eight, speaking of drugs, quote, cracking the case of multiple sclerosis. So apparently about 1 million Americans have MS, which is a large number, but isn't too large as compared to the population. Still, for those that suffer with MS, obviously it would be a blessing akin to the cancer treatments we just discussed to be able to eliminate MS. Now, what scientists have recently discovered or believe they might have discovered is some tie between the Epstein-Barr virus that causes mononucleosis and MS. They're claiming that an infection with this virus raises the risk of developing MS by 30 times. That said, only a very small percentage of those infected actually developed MS, so this may not be much of a finding at all. Unfortunately, the author and implied the scientists are trying to say the virus is a potential long virus, as in a long-term effect, just like COVID. So although they have no cure for MS, nothing to stop this Epstein-Barr virus, we all know that if they're drawing the comparison to COVID, uh, their next step will be to develop a vaccine that they'll recommend that we all get, because so-called vaccines fix all. Moving on to number nine, and the topic header says it all, quote, legal lab meat. Legal lab meat. Now, we all know that it's mean to kill and eat animals, tasty, tasty animals. And we all know that we must kill all the animals because all they do is burp and fart all over my planet, making it warmer and destroying it. Well, one way to do that is to use cells and force the cells to replicate in a lab, synthesizing and controlling them to make them into what you want them to be. It doesn't matter. Now, this may not sound appetizing to you. I understand you. It's because you're an animal murderer. But let's see if your mouth isn't watering after I use the author's words to break down your defensiveness. Quote, Over time, scientists with regulatory approval and commercial success 
will have money to perfect the fat and protein density of lab-grown meat. In one plausible future, decades from now, millions of people may actually prefer the consistency and taste of meat that didn't come from an animal because they'll know that what they're buying when a cultivated ribeye is as consistent as an electrical gadget. <sighs> now tell me you don't want to purchase and eat a factory-manufactured cultivated ribeye with precise fat and protein density. Tell me your tumbly isn't all rumbly now. <laughs> yeah, you can't, can you? So, on the scientific side of things, can anyone say cancer? I, I know we'll have drugs or whatever to knock out cancer by then, but we're constantly being warned about eating processed foods. Doesn't genetically manipulated lab-grown meat product just scream processed foods and future cancers to you? Boy, boy, it does to me. And finally, we come to number 10, quote, new toys for the green energy revolution. Oh, oh, nothing says loads of fun like green toys. Am I right? Seriously, though, although this author buys into the necessity to get away from fossil fuels, you know, to save the planet, he does state correctly that nuclear power is one major direction we should head as it's safe and clean and maligned for absolutely no reason whatsoever. But rather than have large nuclear plants in central locations, a company is developing smaller reactors that could be deployed more easily. A reactor 80 feet tall that could run 60,000 homes is being developed to put into use by the end of this decade. And he also touts geothermal energy, which I'm not opposed to, but in order to fully utilize that kind of technology, we'd have to drill through deep layers of very hard rock, granite, to get to the heated water. A company is currently working on a technology that would, quote, vaporize granite with a highly concentrated beam of radio frequency power. Oh, well, I'm all about that. That sounds cool. I'll just be honest. The potential is that we could drill geothermal wells just, just everywhere. Now, I'm not sure how many holes we should put in our bedrock, but I'm not opposed to very cautiously proceeding down that path. In principle, it's smarter and more useful than wind or solar, which are practically useless, in my opinion. And so as we've arrived at the end of his list, did you notice any themes? We had two that I'd call solid potential innovations, the cancer treatment and the nuclear and geothermal power thing. We had one that promoted the evolutionary ideas, specifically, at least, with the James Webb Telescope. Kind of surprised we only had the one. And then we have what I'd call the largest themes, human laziness and humans believing they can control life and death. We'd like AI to do our work, think our thoughts, create our creations, and write our words. It would, it would give us more leisure time. But of course, we don't want to be unhealthy and fat, so <laughs> drugs to the rescue. This just feels like the Pixar movie WALL-E, a, a race of fat humans sitting in floating chairs while robots do all their work. They're fat and stuck in their chairs for the most part because the robots are doing all their work. Too bad they didn't have some sweet wee and that would have solved the obesity problem for sure. But the largest theme is the idea that we are rapidly discovering how to control life and death. We can reanimate dead pigs, although not, not really. We can create life out of nothing. Eh, that's not actually true at all. We can vaccinate and manipulate our genetic code to eliminate sickness and disease. But that's not ever going to happen. Not as a rule, maybe as an exception from time to time. And we're simply placing our hope in drugs to do the work our immune system was designed to do. 
with no proof, no data, no evidence that these drugs can do what they say they can and, and can do it safely and effectively. And we believe that meat grown from replicating cells is the same as meat grown on an animal uh, that were actually created for our consumption, at least in part. After all, remember, man, animals, plants, we're all just evolutionary branches off of the same tree trunk. So knowing that, we can manipulate life and death. It's, it's just a matter of tweaking our understanding until we've got it all figured out. So I guess on the surface, I can see where these top 10 would fit the list of someone with a very humanist worldview. But for the Christian, we aren't called to be lazy. We aren't called to let our brains atrophy as computers increasingly pick up our slack. We aren't called to skew self-control and discipline using drugs to do the job we're supposed to be doing. And most importantly, we are not the authors of life. We may be able to create babies, but we do not hold the keys to life creation or human immortality. These are God's realm and his realm only. There must be a point that we don't cross, but uh, but all the exits that we should have taken are in the rearview mirror now, and up ahead looks pretty dark, uh, pretty dark, lonely, and scary, to be honest. Wouldn't it be wonderful if instead of most of these so-called innovations, we had real innovations? Like something that gave us definitive proof via an infallible test, proof for the largest skeptic that life begins at the point of conception. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we discovered something that would definitively prove that the Bible is God's word and that God, the God of the Bible, is real and is the only true God? That would be nice. But would it matter? The world isn't interested in proof. It's interested in self. We know that during the millennial reign of Christ, that although there will be no question as to who Jesus is, people will question him regardless and hate and despise him. Wouldn't it be amazing if we had an innovation that revolutionized farming, both growing crops and animals, that would eliminate hunger around the world? Or wouldn't it be great if we innovated systems that utilized all sources of energy so efficiently that we were able to modernize and better the lives of those living in poverty around the world? But those aren't the flavors of the day. Helping your fellow man isn't the sexy thing to do. Vaccines, rescuing the climate, proving we hold the keys to life, and, and leisure. That's where it's at. It's amazing to sit back and look and see how much God has blessed us with creativity, ingenuity, intelligence, and then it's sad to see how much we're focused on denying God, serving self, and making a buck. So, as we head out of 2022 and into 2023, we may not be able to change the course of some of these misguided innovations, we may not have the platform required to reach millions with a different message, but maybe we just do what we're commanded. As we're going about in our world, Tell this person or that person about the good news of the gospel. Be ready for when someone tells you about how such and such college just created life. Be ready to help them understand what really happened and who the author of life really is. Increase your knowledge and your wisdom every day. Even topics or stories that seem trivial in the moment increase wisdom over time. So read your Bible, pray, read the news, understand the world we're in and what's going on. And ultimately, love God and, and love your neighbor. If we strive to do those two things, it will force us to do all of these other things as well. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. 
If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com or increasingly I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. Thank you.